Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now in fast, the Fed hiking interest rates to their highest level in 15 years. Chair Powell telling the market's rates will be higher for longer. So does this mean growth will be lower for longer? Plus, Tesla's unlucky 13. The stock now down nearly 13% this week and over 55% this year. Still retail investors that keep piling in will go inside the numbers. And later, a shark on the hill, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, testifying before the Senate on the collapse of FTX. He will join us to detail what he thinks led to the collapse of SDF's empire. And we'll ask him how he and so many investors got duped in what the new CEO called a straight-up embezzlement scam. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live at the NASDAQ Market Site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and Michael Kantopoulos of Richard Bernstein Advisors. And we start off with a volatile market reaction to the Fed's latest policy move. Major indices ending a two-day win streak after Fed Chair Jerome Powell dashed hopes that a pivot was imminent and suggested the central bank would keep raising rates through next year. The Dow dropping more than 400 points at its low. The Nasdaq falling as much as 1.7 percent. The moves coming as the Fed now sees rates topping out at 5.1 percent next year versus their previous projection of 4.6 percent. It also cut its forecast for economic growth and raised the outlook for unemployment. So what does the prospect of higher rates for longer mean for the markets? Guy, what do you say? I'm shocked the market's not lower than it is. Yes. I mean, we traded from 3490 to basically 4100. We're either side of 4000 here. Again, we play that game. If you had told me a week ago, this mm-hmm. is what he would say, this is where the market is. So I said, the S&P's down 150 handles easy given the run. It was down, what, 25? That's not bad. Now, listen, obviously, tomorrow's another day. We'll see. But he was crystal clear. We're missing, and we're missing by a lot. The labor market's still too tight. I mean, he could have been more clear in terms of what their expectations are and what they're going to do all of next year. I'm shocked that the market didn't behave in kind. Michael, what was your take? Yeah, I agree with Guy. You know, I think Steve Leisman opened up the press conference uh, asking about financial conditions. And to me, you know, Chair Powell sounded quite hawkish. You know, he was saying, basically, listen, guys, you know, we're going to be higher than you expect. We're going to be higher for longer than you expect. Invest at your own peril. Um, you know, the, the, the Steve, I think, asked specifically about the November meeting to the December meeting and the rally in equities, uh, lower yields. And, and Powell said, listen, you know, we don't care about intermeeting moves. We care about a longer term horizon. And the market just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, Sandy Cannold, our executive, yes, Scratch, executive producer, Scratch. and I were chatting um, while the press conference was still going on. And I said, it, feel, it feels like the market should sell off into the close. Like everything was out there for the markets to be like, oh, much more hawkish or more hawkish. And so therefore we need to sort of correct for that. And yet mm-hmm. that didn't happen. Why yeah. do you think? I think it didn't happen because people are expecting that the inflation data will be better. And, and so that the will, Fed give, will force the Fed to that will give the yeah. Fed some cover to not be quite as aggressive as he sounded because he did sound pretty aggressive. Yeah. And you had, you know, you had the, the plot with the 5.6 number out there, 5.63 at the high end, which is, you know, I don't know who that was, but it was the idea of, you know, they have said for a long time, we want positive real rates. And with inflation here, 
you got a ways to go right. to get. So, um, so it was very, very hawkish. But that, that's my only explanation, that people think that inflation's really rolling over and that will give them some hope. Well, and, and, if, and look at the VIX that was down almost 7% today. Would you have expected this on a Fed day? But, you know, that VIX tells you there was a message of relief. And I think the message of relief is that people kind of, uh, they have a sense of what they, what they need from the Fed. Look, Powell was very clear, and Michael emphasized a couple of the, the most important. It's about, about the labor market right now. And he said uh, market conditions are extremely tight. We're in a place here where we're very focused on that, and we're, we're going to remain higher for longer. Um, ultimately, for equities, uh, the problem and, and and, and you know the benefit here of this is that lower growth for longer um, is is certainly not great, but it's not a credit crisis. It's great we have a credit expert on the desk tonight because ultimately I think markets were preparing for the next leg of the journey. We've priced in the Fed. I mean, the Fed was 34.50 on the S&P two months ago. That's where we are. We're waiting for earnings to be revised downward, but really the thing we're most concerned about is a credit crisis. When I hear Powell reiterate, and he doesn't have a crystal ball, but he's sticking by, hey, I'm not sure we have to have a reset. Session. Mm-hmm. That's an environment where stocks, I, I think, are going to be under control here, especially when people are underallocated. There's ways to invest through this. You're buying, you know, high quality stocks, free cash flow generators, companies that are paying down debt. There is a playbook for that. Right. Majority of dots say above 5% for 2023. And so while there may not be a credit crisis, couldn't things get a little dicey? I mean, if, if rates stay higher for longer, debt payments, interest expense will expand. I mean, at some no, point, that's right. going to catch up. That, that's absolutely right. And, and, and I mean, if you look at lending standards at the moment, they're the tightest they've been since the global financial crisis. And that's only going to get worse, right? What I think that investors don't quite get yet is that the move from you know, 7.1% to 5% is going to be pretty easy. The move going from 5% to 2% is going to be very hard. In order to get that last leg of inflation lower, the Fed's going to have to stay restrictive, which they already are for much longer. Now, I'm like Tim, I don't think a credit crisis is looming, but we're going to see wider spreads and we're going to see you know, a much, much uh, more difficult credit environment as we go into next year. It's not a crisis. It's not the type of leverage you had during the GFC. But it's also not going to be, uh, you know, all roses either. You know, the ta- effectively, we need unemployment to go up significantly from where it is now yeah. in order for them to take them to take their collective foot off the gas. So think about it. You're talking probably a five handle or so on unemployment is my sense is what their bogey is. What does what the country look? What does the economy look like under those scenarios? What does the consumer look like? What does growth look like and what do earnings look like? So we can say the Fed has your back, doesn't have your back. But at the end of this, and Tim mentioned it on Twitter the other day, it comes down to earnings, revenue growth and and earnings growth. And we just don't have it, in my opinion, to necessitate or to make to have this multiple of now probably close to 19 times next year's numbers make any sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So the reset will happen. And I mean, higher rates, and we're going to talk about this more in depth later, but what we saw today was the growth stocks came off. We saw a move into defensive for sure, Tim. Yeah. Is that is that the playbook then? I think the playbook is, uh, look, I expect small caps to underperform large caps. I expect mm-hmm. quality to outperform. I expect companies that are are generating free cash flow. And we've talked about some companies that, like, I, I, you know, we heard from Delta today. They did Investor Day. I know airlines aren't sexy, and I know, you know, I've probably talked about Delta for a year and been largely wrong because the stock's only started to move now. But, but this is a company that's going to double 
double free cash flow next year. This is a company, you look at the energy sector. Part of the story is like, I don't invest in, in the price of oil. I invest in energy stocks and energy companies. They're paying down debt. They're debt to EBITDA levels. We're going to talk to Paul Sadanke later in the show, so I'll save that conversation. I just think you've got a, a, a backdrop here where there are ways to invest through this. I think the, the most interesting place maybe you know, is banks, right? I mean, because if we don't, if you take credit off the table, banks have great balance sheets, at least for now. They are paying dividends. They are generating free cash flow, uh, net interest margins in a higher rate environment. This is what banks have been waiting for. Look at European banks. They've been outperforming everything because you went from the worst negative real rates in the world by far to a place where these banks can be profitable in their core business. Yeah, Karen. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. If, if we see the Fed stabilize and uh-huh. rates are higher, but they're not really moving that much, that's sort of an okay position to be in. And right. I th- right. And if they can get deals done, you would know better than I. But if the credit markets are thriving at just the new the new normal. Right. That's a good position for banks. As long as credit, the underlying credit worthiness is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And well, that's one, one of the one of the things that we're seeing, though, is that banks are having a hard time offloading these, uh, risky debt. Right. Yeah. You're seeing hung bridge loans. Right. You're seeing the really the demand for risky credit. At virtually, you know, nil at the moment. I mean, triple C issuance has been zero for the last several months, and the banks are saddled with debt. So I'm a little bit more cautious on the banks. You know, higher rates do help. But remember, what NIM is going to follow, net interest margin, is the steepness of the yield curve. And an inverted yield curve is not good for banks. But wait, wait, wait. wait. Yeah. Can I just address yeah. that, though? We, the banks do seem to trade on this two-year, ten-year, right? Right. However, that's not the way they're set up. That's not the way the net interest margin works. But it's that, much, it's, their duration is nowhere near that. But isn't that a trade. function of the fact that deposit rates haven't gone up yet? And all it just takes is several banks to bring up deposit rates, and you start killing that net interest margin. Definitely, there's a lag, and they will that that will. But right now, if you look at the short end of the curve, I mean that's a huge spread for them. For now. For now, yeah. For now. So, which leads me to this question in terms I like of the yield curve. Chris show. <laughs> it is. Oh, it is. Three point four seven percent thereabouts. That's where we are at the ten-year yield. What does that tell us? Headed lower, I think. Yeah. I think it's you know again. But what does it, that tell us? It tells us growth is slowing. Okay. And then the and the front end at four and a quarter, probably staying there for the foreseeable future, tells us inflation's still a problem. That's not a healthy scenario. And again, my opinion, Steve might have some thoughts on this oh, for the Steve. equity markets. It's done well Steve. so far, but you know, it's an eighty basis, a negative eighty point basis point inversion. I think headed to one percent. I don't think that's a particularly uh, healthy scenario. Let's bring in Steve. Bring him in. Aforementioned. Mm-hmm. Yes, the aforementioned Steve. CNBC Senior Economics Reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, I'm gonna, I'll ask you that question. You were sitting. You're, you opened up the press conference with Chair Powell. What does three, four, seven, seven percent on the ten-year yield tell you? The fact that yields went lower today. I don't know what to believe anymore, Melissa. I am betwixt and between. I'm about to have a intellectual crisis right here on national television. I have a Fed chair and and a really committed Federal Reserve to raising rates above 5%. And I have a market, for lack of a better word, showing the Fed the finger, essentially, here. Um, And you can see it. Can I I say that on national television? I don't even know. (laughs) I just did. You just did. But I didn't say the word, so maybe that's okay. It's fine. Right, it's fine. So anyway, the point being that um, when you look at, guys, if you could put up that Fed rate outlook chart, Look at where the market is for next year. That gap is now growing, which is now grown today from where the Fed thinks it's going to be and where the market thinks they're going to be. So what, do you, what is that? 65 and 15. Uh, that's 80 basis points right now between where the market thinks the Fed's going to be end of the year and where the Fed thinks it's going to be. Um, and if you're going to ask me who do you believe, 
I don't know. I don't know. The market has a view. And I got to say, the only way to square this, the market view, is that inflation comes down and it comes down hard and fast and convincingly. If that is the case, the market will be right and the Fed will be wrong. I think there's less consequence to the Fed being wrong and the, and, than the market being wrong. Because if the market's wrong and inflation stays high and the Fed has to go up to five and change, I think there's some adjustment in some of your guys' portfolios over there that needs to be yeah. done. Yeah, I mean, if, if inflation comes down very swiftly, which would be a great thing, there's still a lot of tightening, you know, the lag effect that's going to happen. And there, there's the QT effect that's yet to happen. And so, you know, that's right. I, think, I think that people on this desk would, might posit that 3477 is telling you that the Fed is, has overstepped or will be in a position where it has overstepped because inflation will come down. Inflation will come down. And, it's all, the, the, and all this tightening is already in the pipe. Yeah, and the economy will, will slow more than the Fed forecast. Yeah. Um, I have to say, Melissa, in all honesty, I didn't know the answer to the question that I asked Powell. I don't know what he can do here. And, and I think his answer was sort of, what's the way you say it? Sort of a play within a play. All he could do was talk tough and say, look, we may raise it again. We're going to go up to five and change. And if you look, by the way, at the conviction of the Federal Reserve, I was very impressed by this. I broke down the dot plots for you here. Take a look at how the 2023 projections they have here. 17 members are above 5% now um, in terms of the outlook for the Fed. None were in the last forecast. Well, there's that way to look at it. Guys, I gave you a better chart that's more understandable. But in any event, uh, maybe, maybe you can glean from the dots. There you go. I think that's an easier way to understand it. 17 are to the right of that 5.13. And there's a good wing there. Seven are above 540. And as Karen was saying earlier, there's one person who's not only 563 for 2023, but 2024 and 2025. That one person, I don't, we don't know who that is. We're going to try to figure that out, of course, over time. Only two are, look at, look at that rate right there at 490. That's where everybody kind of thought the Fed was going to. So there is conviction on the Federal Reserve of getting up to that level and staying there. By the way, that's the year-end forecast. That's not the peak rate forecast. That's the year-end forecast. So um, there's a lot of conviction. There. That's what they have to do. They could all be wrong. That's entirely possible. Uh, but somewhere along the line, somebody's going to have to make a change here. Maybe it's the Fed. Maybe it's the market. By the way, Steve, that chart, just you, you can't see it as well as we can. It looks like actually someone's giving you the finger. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but anyway. Um, lower it's a Rorschach infl- test, Tim. In, in, uh, it's okay. Um, but, but higher, longer-term inflation in this country, and because labor is sticky, they've emphasized this, um, housing costs may come down, um, also leads to lower growth. Any just projection on U.S. economic growth at the next couple of years. This isn't a fair exercise for you, but, but I, I, you know, higher inflation isn't good for stocks because um, ultimately we're going to get lower growth out of this economy. You know, I think that's right. And in fact, if you want to hear, Tim, the other question I was going to ask uh, Powell, which obviously you only get one question, is you notice how he said that labor shortage isn't going away anytime soon? Well, you know how you calculate growth, right? It's hours worked plus productivity. If productivity doesn't change and we have a permanent labor shortage or a secular labor problem in this country, that does mean lower growth for the long term as well. That's something else to think about. Um, I think an environment of lower inflation is an easier environment in which for companies to operate, even though uh, they have done quite well in this inflationary environment. They have, in fact, increased their margins. And so what's going to happen here now, Tim, Worth, worth also putting into your, your spreadsheets there is as inflation comes down, margin should come down, too. So you got to figure that out, too. Yep. Steve, thank you. Pleasure. 
Steve Leisman from Washington for us tonight. Um, how will companies fare in this new environment, Guy, higher for longer? I think, listen, how, how much longer can you pass on your costs? They're reaching, the they're they're reaching, reaching the limit right? So point. when you hear PepsiCo or General Mills, mm-hmm. 16% organic yeah. growth, which is just code for 16% inflation we're passing on to the customer. You can't, how much longer can I don't think you yeah. can. So to answer your question, margins contract. I think revenues, by definition, start to contract, so earnings do as well, which means the multiple you pay for all that should be lower, too. I think expenses contract. I think we're going to see a real white-collar recession, right? The number of job openings for blue-collar is still huge. They're nowhere close to filling that. And yet, on the other side, we see white-collar jobs cut every day, and we're just, just, just getting started. So that doesn't come out in wage, you know, hourly wages, but it is deflationary. There's a psychological effect, too. If, if yes, you see people spending. at your company, right, getting laid off and you're seeing belt tightening at your company, no more travel, no more dinners, no holiday party, et cetera, that gets you to belt tighten yourself in your own household. So there's like a ripple effect here. How do you think about that hitting white collar in particular and the impact on the economy? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, obviously there should be some trickle down from white collar down to blue collars as white collar doesn't spend quite as much. That should trickle down. But I think Karen's absolutely right. I mean, when you look at the labor shortage, it is in the service industry. It typically is in blue collar jobs. The way I always say this is if you're a hotel and you are able to staff to 80 percent right post pandemic and you lose 10 percent of your business and now you're only 90 percent full, you don't have to cut, you know, the, the staff around your hotel. And, you know, that's that's going to be a tough hurdle to, to climb. All right. We got an earnings alert here on Lennar. Shares are lower after reporting mixed results for the latest quarter, uh, down 1.4 percent right now. Diana Oleg joins us uh, now with the report. Diana. Well, Melissa, a mixed picture from Lennar and Q4. EPS came in at $4.55 a share, below estimates of $4.90 a share, but revenue beat slightly at $10.2 billion. Home deliveries were up 13% over last year and in line with guidance estimates given at the beginning of the quarter. But new orders down 15% to 13,200 homes, and the dollar volume on that was down 24% to $5.5 billion. Lenar's cancellation rate doubled from 12% a year ago to 26% in Q4. Lenar's chairman, Stuart Miller, said in the release, our gross margin declined by 270 basis points year over year as we adjusted the price of both our new home sales and homes in backlog to market to reduce cancellation rates and promote deliveries. Now, Q1 delivery guidance is higher than expected, but new order guidance below estimates. Miller added that sales volume and pricing have clearly been impacted by rising interest rates. He did not, however, specifically reference the recent drop in mortgage rates, which are now down a full percentage point from where they were in October. Melissa? Yeah, it's been a big move. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. How do you think about that? Mortgage rates are lower, but the outlook for the economy is more bleak. I, I think if you're investing in home builders tactically, mm-hmm. the last three months was a great time to do it. And I think you just hide your trade. I, I, I would, there's no way I, I want to be buying Lennar in this environment where I think velocity of home ownership and still getting loans. Michael's talking about where banks are. I, it, no, I'm sorry. I understand that on a trailing basis, this is like less than a six times multiple, and this is not the housing crisis. But no, I'm not buying housing. Stock went from 70 to 90 in seemingly a couple weeks, and 90 is basically where we topped out in the middle of August. So this is a natural place to take money off the table. But if 10-year yields continue to go lower, there's going to be a place to buy back this stock. And just looking at a chart, it probably comes in the form of the low 80s. So take profits here, but look for another entry point lower. 
Coming up, more on today's big Fed decision, what the Fed's strategy means for the growth trade in the new year. We've got the details ahead. And one media stock taking a big leg lower in today's session. The moves the company is making that had investors dropping out. The details when Fast Money returns. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. With the Fed indicating interest rates will remain higher for longer, we wondered if that means the growth trade will be lower for longer. Big tech has been hit hard by rising rates this year. The XLK, SMH, semi-ETF both on pace for their worst year since 2008. And the Spider Biotech ETF losing a quarter of its value, its worst year on record. So there's a struggle in store for growth in 2023. I don't know. Uh, Karen, where would you stand on that? Well, I'm short the IGV, which mm-hmm. I think of as, you know, growthy, growthy very uh-huh. high growth. And that's uh, and still short because even though things have come in a lot, they were so far in the stratosphere that I think there's still a lot to go now. Yeah. Tim? When I think of the mega cap names that, that have been the place people have sought growth, I still think Google is a place where you're going to get above uh, market trend on earnings growth at a multiple that makes sense. It's going to be probably the best peg ratio of, of any of the majors. So um, I, the place I get most worried about is in cloud. And think of all the companies that have hinged uh, their future or the last couple of years on cloud. And it's not just Microsoft. And it's not, it's, I don't think it's as much about Google, but obviously Amazon and, and then go on down. And even IBM, which people have given a lot of credit, I think related to the game. So uh, I'm worried about the cloud trading. I think it's mm-hmm. unbelievably competitive, and I think enterprise at some point will pull back. You were pointing out Apple and how it hasn't participated no. of late. Today is no exception. Is it an idiosyncratic story, or is it this notion that rates are higher and people are scrutinizing? Look, Apple's more? its own animal without question. Yeah. So I think to a certain extent it's Apple specific, but then you start going down the food chain, and since we'll play the growth game, mm-hmm. NVIDIA's rallied, what, 60% from 80. the October? 80 percent from the October low. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a second. It's probably still down 50 percent from its all-time high. So at current levels, it's trading at 15 times revenues, which is expensive in any environment, not least of which the environment we find ourselves in. So is it dead? No. But should these stocks still be trading there? Absolutely not. I think the um, you know the growth trade was really driven by a massive bubble in Treasuries and liquidity, and Mm -hmm. that that's over, right? And so now the question is going to be. 
whether or not you transition from a liquidity bubble and the popping of that liquidity bubble in 2022 to now tech behaving, what it really is, is just more cyclical, right? I mean, cloud is cyclical, right? Subscription services, yep. cyclical. Yeah. So that's the big question is what is the earnings story going to be for tech in 2023? 2022 is about the liquidity bubble popping. And I think that's the story going forward. Semis used to be cyclical also. No they longer. They sh- should be. I know, I know. That's the guy's be. point, I think, right? right? They but, used to trade mm-hmm. it, you know, cyclical. But then something like but, Taiwan Semi, which is priced in a lot of cyclicality, and I'll say it again, I, I think the minute you get that first iPhone shipment warning is probably the time you want to buy Taiwan Semi. But we've said this before, in, in, in at least some of the foundry chips and some of the less leading edge stuff, um, I, I think it is cyclical. And I think six to nine months before you actually expect to see um, some, some reacceleration in the economy, you want to own these things. So it tells me that despite all the, uh, the tactical rallies we've had, that you, you want to buy Taiwan Semi somewhere late first quarter, early second quarter, based upon the macro we all just talked about for the last right, 20 minutes. Right. I mean, there was a time not too long ago when, when people were making the case regularly on this network, I'm not talking about our show, um, that big cap tech was not cyclical. It was defensive. It was, it was in good in good, good weather, yeah, sure. good in bad weather. Mm-hmm. It yep. was just going to serve you well in all environments. And that has clearly unraveled. In a zero interest rate environment, that was sure, 100% yeah. true. And then when people started looking at valuations in November of last year, mm-hmm. obviously that it's not coincidental that so many names we talk about seemingly every night all topped out 13 or so months ago, and that's when the Fed pivoted. So, yeah. again, it's just a, it's a rates thing. And tech is competing with fixed income. And credit markets. I mean, right. think about this. Think about Tina. Who's Tina? I don't I mean, know. You know, Gilligan's right. Island. Well, no, I would go <laughs> Tina Turner. Tina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking Tina Louise. Yeah, of course you were. Well, well the, the other <laughs> thing is, is isn't the whole story of, of tech <laughs> to pay for growth, right? Right. And, and if you look, right, what is the best sector for long-term growth? It's actually energy. Why are we looking at tech for growth? Tina Yothers on Family Ties. You know what? Yeah. Ever mentions her name That's on TV. That's a deep Ever. Poll. Probably that since a, then. Yeah. First Michael time J. Fox money, watches. I mean, I mean, he's Karen's friends with Michael. He might be watching right now. Could be. Possibly. A lot of people like, could be could watching. Be. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> a lot of things not. could be happening. Right. <laughs> Coming up, shares of Charter Communications dropping hard in today's session. The $5 billion upgrade that had investors losing connection. And more on that next. Plus, have we seen the bottom of the barrel? Oil continuing its bounce, but will prices keep pumping? The huge move our next guest sees coming in the new year. You're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks closing in the red after the Fed raised rates and signaled more hikes in 2023. The Dow dropping more than 140 points. The S&P falling about a half a percent. And the Nasdaq leading the losses down three quarters of a percent. But all three indices still on pace for positive weeks. The only positive sector in today's sell-off, healthcare, led by names like Moderna and Pfizer. And check out Charter Communications. That dropped more than 16 percent after CEO Thomas Rutledge said at an investor event that uh, CapEx for the year would come in 
been higher than expected. He also said the company will invest $5.5 billion over three years to upgrade its high-speed Internet network, the company losing $10 billion in market cap just today. Guy. Go back and look at where the stock was in 2018. Stock was north of $800. Not that that matters, but just for context, north of $800. Look where it traded today. Traded five times normal volume. Start doing the math, and Karen and I were talking about it before the show. What they lost today is not nearly commensurate with the amount of money they're going to spend. And the stock has gotten weighed, whaled on. Traded five times normal volume. Very reasonable in terms of, uh, EP, in terms of earnings in terms of P.E. right here, probably about 10 times or so next year's numbers. I think this is a capitulation you've been waiting for. I think you can buy the stock here. And the reason for the capitulation was an investor meeting where the CEO laid out a, a spending plan that historically, when you think about cable companies, and I'm talking about over the last 30 years, um, that spending plan was supported by growth and supported by infrastructure and secular tailwinds that we know are everything that is flying in the face of, you know, pulling the, ripping the cord out or whatever we say. So I, that's what today was. It was about whether the ROIC in a company like this is worth um, what they're going to go spend. All right. Coming up, crude comeback. WTI continuing to climb after scraping the bottom of the barrel a week ago. But as the oil slick over, top analyst Ooh. Paul Sankey joins us next to lay out where he <laughs> sees crude heading in the new year. His oil price plus a new cares trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. WTI crude rebounding off its lows of the year, rising another 2% plus today. The commodity, which hit its lowest level since last December on Friday, is now up more than 8% this week. So as the worst over for crude, let's bring in Paul Sankey of Sankey Research for more on what 2023 brings. Paul, good to see you. So we've good seen see. the lows for crude, you think? For this year, I think so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think if you look back at 2018 and the taper tantrum, we had very similar market action that we expect every year anyway from Labor Day into the beginning of winter, which is essentially what we've seen, a significant fall off in prices uh, since Labor Day, essentially down to the lows that we just saw. And if you look at what happened in 18 into 19, we saw crude running hard into driving season. So we're looking for $120 Brent, which would be you know $115 WTI by driving season, which would be May next year, 2023. So yeah, the answer to your question is yes. So what happens with uh, energy equities with this backdrop, with this roller coaster? Well, that, yeah, that's a very interesting question, Melissa, because what we've seen here on the downside, of certainly for the first part of the big down move in crude, was that the energy equities outperformed significantly, which say they didn't go down as much as oil did. I think they were kind of discounting 80 and they were OK with a move down to 80. I think when the risk got that we broke below 80, um, then it became a problem for the equities in that last leg. And as you can see now that we're getting this beginning of winter, very cold in Europe, you know, Russian oil coming off the market, et cetera, et cetera, all the things are coming together. You can see the equities are moving very well here as the, as the crude price moves. So, Paul, put your economist hat on real quick, because if we get a 50, 5-0% rally in Brent, I think the math is right, by the spring, that makes this Federal Reserve job extraordinarily more difficult than it is right now. Agreed? Well, yeah, I mean, look at the Saudis, you know, I mean, I think that was really upsetting the administration, right? And if one of the, the scary things here from an administration point of view is that the announcement OPEC plus a couple of months ago that they would cut two million barrels a day, they never cut exports. And so the potential is there, I think, for Saudi to, to move more towards a hundred dollar type target, which I believe they have than allow oil to stay down here. I think they didn't cut because of the huge uncertainty that we had going into Russian sanctions, winter, SPR releases, everything else. 
But now I think unless we're moving towards 100, they're going to they're mm. act to, to help, that, help that on its way. Definitely part of the call here. Before we get to your Paris trade, Paul, I wanted to see how you yes. thought about China um, with its sudden and drastic reopening, which is resulting in, in to, to a point where they're not even testing anymore. I mean, they're not, they're not PCR testing. They're not keeping track of COVID cases. It's just too overwhelming. So um, is the situa- situation in China, is that going to be a tailwind or a headwind for oil prices? Well, I was with the, C- the Chevron CEO uh, on the road uh, last week or so, and you know the concern is they don't have the healthcare system to manage, mm-hmm. you know, a really bad issue here, and so it's extremely difficult, difficult to call. And actually, he, Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, called it the biggest macro uncertainty of 2023, which is to say, of course, there'll be a recovery in economic activity uh, as you open up against COVID zero. But then again, you know, they don't have a good vaccine and they don't have a great healthcare system. So it's that that's a brute. Uh, the IEA this morning reported its oil market report and they've got pretty aggressive numbers in for China growth, actually, interestingly. They've also got aggressive cuts in Russian supply. And if you combine those two things together, the note, their note this morning read very bullishly. Okay. And um, your Paris trade, Paul, we'd love to do this. It's, it started as a fun thing, but it's, it it's turned out to be something that we brutal. just. <laughs> the last one, the last one was what, short Ford? No, I, well, yeah, actually, it was long E&I. We thought the Europeans would have a good right. run. And, and the E&I side and the Italian major actually worked OK. Uh, in fact, Karen, to give her credit, said better better Tesla than, than Ford. And, and I said, well, I'm just doing ticket E versus ticket F, but I agree with you on Tesla. And that trade kind of worked, but I credit Karen with the call. Uh, this time, what we're saying is, look, there's an oil supply problem globally. We know that, that it's out there. And we, we do think that oil service is going to be a, a great way to play a bullish oil run here. So we're liking Halliburton. We could have said neighbors. If you want some real hair, you could have gone with rig Transocean. But we're saying Halliburton on the long side. One thing the IEA is highlighting in their report this morning is bad petrochemicals, really bad. Uh, it's a nasty combination of weakening demand and high input costs. Again, if input costs are going to go up, which would be crude prices running in the way that I'm, I'm calling, mm-hmm. uh, we're saying short Westlake, but you can, you can short almost any pet chemical play here against Halliburton, and that's the pair. Paul, thank you. Good to see you. Paul Sankey, Thanks. Sankey Research. Tim? So $120 oil prices would seemingly be great for oil equities, except for it's not. High oil prices are not an environment to necessarily be chasing oil stocks because no one believes those prices are sustainable. Uh, If you think about where most of these uh, integrateds and some of even the upstream folks are priced, it's off of probably a $70 oil curve, which is clearly where we are. I totally look. I've been long Holly Burton. I've been long Schlumberger for two years, uh, and I think there's a lot more to do. The oil offshore drilling market is is getting very tight. So uh, wells that were drilled but not completed have all been maxed out now. And there's a lot of fresh drilling that needs to go. And I think you can stay in this trade. And you like energy, Michael. We like we like energy a lot. We like it from a, a longer term basis, quite mm-hmm. frankly, more in a secular uh, point of view. We think the cyclical, listen, the demand side, if you really do get a recession, it's going to take energy a little bit lower, right? But on a longer term basis, we're very, very constructive energy and commodities in, ge- in general. We think that's the trade for higher inflation environment, which we're likely going to see for some time. Grade Paul's Paris trade. Got Badass. It. Oh, that's not a grade. Not, not Paul. This one? The well, the last trade. two have been unbelievable. This one. This I like one, this, this is one. well thought out. Short chemicals, right. long, long services. Yeah. I mean, that, I, well, he, we'll be back, he'll be back in February, and we'll be saying you're a genius call. Great call. 
OIH will be 320 by then. Westlake lower, good for Paul Sankey. Coming up, Tesla's troubles continue. That stock hitting new two-year lows, but that's not stopping the retail trader from plugging in. More on that trend ahead. And the latest on the FTX fallout, Shark Tank investor Kevin O'Leary testifying before the Senate today what he told them about the collapsed crypto firm. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla tumbling to a fresh two-year low today, bringing its losses for the week to more than 12%. But that has not stopped retail traders from buying with both hands. According to VandaTrack, over the last five days, investors have snapped up more than $600 million worth of Tesla stock, nearly as much as their next four favorite names combined. I mean, we haven't seen this forward P.E. in in a couple years. No, actually, it's a record, record low forward P.E. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Are they getting taken? Uh, but when has P.E. Has, had anything to do with why retail's been buying Tesla? I mean, in fact, they never had a P.E. when they first started buying it because they had no earnings. So I, I, I actually was looking at the chart two days ago, and I saw that it actually dipped below uh, where it had been from the share split going all the way back to the summer of 2020, which I think is a dangerous level on the chart. That's all I'll say. Yeah. The other night you brought up the GM versus Tesla chart. We had Mark Fields on last night, mm-hmm. formerly of Ford, and we put up the Ford versus Tesla chart two years. And Ford... Mm-hmm. Handily. Handily outperformed Tesla. Uh-huh. And so we were talking about the notion that finally legacy OEMs may have a shot at getting into this EV race in a more substantial way because of Tesla's troubles. Do you think? I, I think that's true, uh-huh. right? So time has gone by and they are ready to market or in market in some. But, but I also think that it's very Elon specific. And I got a lot of pushback on that. But, you know, I looked at where, which state has the most F-150 sales. It's Texas by mm. a lot. So if, you know, the CEO of Ford were to go out and start trashing Texas, that wouldn't be a wise thing. And I'd be pissed as a shareholder. Right. So it's not a political statement. It's just, I don't know, you probably shouldn't be aggravating half the shareholders or half the potential buyers. Well, options traders aren't quite as optimistic as that retail crowd on where Tesla could be heading next. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly joins us with the action. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Well, Tesla is a very sentiment-driven stock, and we saw that today where we saw 1.4 times the amount of puts traded versus calls. And given that sentiment, it actually was reflected into a sizable trade today where we actually saw a buyer thinking Santa Claus is going to bring more coal than a rally to Tesla for the next nine days, where they bought almost 4,000 contracts expiring on December 23rd of the 140 puts, and they they paid $1.22 for that. So Tesla has an implied volatility of, of almost 70, but they were willing to pay the price. All right, Kevin, thanks. Kevin Kelly for more options action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Shark Tank investor Kevin O'Leary joins us with the latest on the FTX fallout, what he told the Senate about Sam Bankman-Fried and the collapsed crypto firm. He was an investor in the U.S. as well as the overseas. That interview when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Senate Banking Committee holding a second day of hearings on the downfall of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, examining how the company's implosion could impact the industry. FTX investor Kevin O'Leary, who lost millions, had this to say regarding how the fallout occurred. In my view, my personal opinion, these two behemoths that own the unregulated market together and grew these incredible businesses in terms of growth were at war with each other. 
and one put the other out of business intentionally. Now, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, maybe there's nothing wrong with love and war, but finance is a massive, unregulated, global monopoly now. They put FTX out of business. Now, lots of other reasons, I'm sure, but that's my personal opinion. That is what Sam Bankman-Fried told me in terms of where the assets went. Kevin joins us now live. He is a CNBC contributor, the host of CNBC's Money Court and a Shark Tank investor. Kevin, always great to speak with you and get your take on, on this. Um, Binance didn't make SBF, you know, embezzle money. Binance didn't, you know, incinerate all of the, you know, accounting trails for where the money went in terms of Alameda research. So I'm wondering um, if you think that you're laying a little bit too much blame uh, at Binance's foot as opposed to saying, you know what, SBF ran this operation that was just completely a mirage. No, that's not what I was asked today. That's not why that hearing was put together. It was designed to explore the reasons for the demise of FTX. And look, there's lots of accounting issues. There will be lots of investigations. There's lots of litigation. But let's just talk about where the money went. This is a pretty simple situation. Way back on the Saturday when the, the after Friday, after it was, was uh, I'm going to give you a date here. I'm just looking up my notes here. Saturday, November 12th. Um, I noticed in our corporate accounts, yes, I am an investor, um, there was nothing there. Not only were there no assets, there were no records. There was nothing. So it had been stripped clean. So I decided, okay, I know the management of this company. I'm going to make some phone calls, ask where it went. Where was it? Did it get hacked? Did it go to the Bohemian government? Did it go to um, wherever, FTX US? Just where's the money? It's a very simple question. It's not brain surgery here. And I, I just called Sam up. Sam Bankman-Fried said, Sam, where's the money? And he said, I'm not, I don't have access anymore to the servers. Um, and I said, okay, walk me back 24 months. Where'd the money go? Forget about the small stuff, the 50 million, the 200 million, all the stuff, all the allegations, all the <laughs> allegations of fraud. Forget all that. Tell me, you're a $32 billion company. Where'd the real money go? That's when I learned that he bought back all the stock from Binance. They were a 20% shareholder. I didn't know that. The second largest shareholder, maybe, I don't have the records, but we're going to find this all out. And the first largest shareholder, the biggest shareholder, Sam Bankman-Fried himself, bought out all the stock of Binance. And I said to him, why would you do that? Why would you pay a $32 billion valuation for something that you sold for seed stock valuations just months ago. He said, I can't get licensed anymore. Anywhere I go, when, when Binance is 20% of the cap table, the regulators turn me down. Now, either CZ was being uncooperative or he had reasons not to disclose whatever the regulators wanted in every geography they went. So according to Sang Bankman-Fried, Sang Bankman-Fried, these first words, I had to buy it back. I had to bring it back on the cap table. You want to know where the money went? That's where it went. And all I'm saying is, sure, there's other allegations, and I know that's all going to be put through the system. Sure. I get it. But that was a very, the, the major loss of the balance sheet was basically uh -huh. a related transaction between two shareholders. And the, right. only ring I, the only reason I brought it up is that sounds like a Madoff clawback to me. 
I mean, this, there's something wrong here. Can I ask you, Kevin, because it, it made it sound, you made it sound like he used cash, he used money that was in various accounts in order to do this, money that was in your account, for instance. But, but did Sam Bankman-Fried use FTT tokens to buy any part of that Binance stake back? Great question, Melissa. Nobody knows. There's no records anymore. And that's the first place I'm sure John Ray is going to look. But was it cash? My bet is a lot of it was cash. We just simply don't know. But the point is, let's move forward now to the mm -hmm. week of November 6th when this company went bankrupt. Why in the world would a block trade like the one owned by CZ and or Binance be tweeted out saying, I have $550 million with the FTT tokens I'm going to put to the market. You don't right. trade like that. You arrange a cross. You go and find buyers. You form a syndicate. And you clear market with a trade. Well, that's, that's in traditional finance, Kevin. This is decentralized, you know, Wild West finance. So he didn't do well, that. Well, Melissa, <laughs> that's the whole point. And, and right. let me tell you something. My read of the Senate today, they're tired of this. They don't want to keep holding hearings every six months when the next crypto crap blows up. They're done with it. They're not happy right. cowboys. They're really unhappy. And it's not going to stop here. Now, I don't know where we're going with this. The narrative is obviously going to be looking at Binance next. I have no idea. All of this stuff is alleged. There's no records. But the Senate, the Hill, the legislators, the regulators, they're done. They've had enough. And so I think we're going to get some action here. You can't keep taking these things down to zero a billion at a time. Right. I mean, action, if they're sick and tired of this situation, Kevin, it sounds like the regulation is going to be very harsh and it's going to be, you know, swift in congressional terms, which is probably not swift enough, but but swift on their timeline. Kevin, I'm wondering, because you're an investor, right, in the U.S. platform, I believe, as well as the foreign entity as a VC investor with your own dollars, not with other people's money. And so as an investor in this, what did you see? Did you have any clue? I mean, when John Ray comes out and says this was worse than Enron when it comes to accounting, and Enron was pretty bad, obviously. I mean, weren't you privy to that? Didn't you see anything that, that would tip you off? No, I didn't see anything that would tip me off. And, and you're right. I'd never put an LP into this because I was a paid spokesperson. That would have been a conflict of interest. So it's all mine. I get it. And I look like an idiot, and so do the other 90 investors. We all feel very foolish. But at this point now, the most important thing are the records. And so John Ray has to go get the records. I'd argue this is a very simple situation, not that complicated. You follow the money. Now, let me tell you why it's going to be not so hard to do that. Every wire transfer going into Alameda, whether it's a Fed wire, ACH transfer, or a, a SWIFT wire, whether we're going to know the address it went to, we can audit that. All the meat grinding that went on in Alameda, we'll get the accounting records of that. We'll know how that occurred. Any transfers between FTX and Alameda, we'll get that too. Any crypto leaving either of those entities is on the blockchain, irrevocable. You can audit that. So my, my guess is we'll find out what happened here. I don't know where the cash is, but the, the overall, I was in Washington all day today. The, 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 the mood, the tone, they're not okay here, Melissa. They're not okay. And so watch what happens. I predict swift, difficult, unhappiness. Mm -hmm. They don't want any more hearings. 
So, Kevin, I'm, I'm curious, have you talked to Sam Bankman-Fried since all of this has gone down? Last time I talked to him was prior to it when he was arrested. I was trying to clarify. When I first talked to him about, look, I was shocked when he told me he spent, he told me the first time I talked to him, I said, Sam, 24 months, where's the cash? Keep it simple. We don't have to get complicated here. I don't want to hear about the trading. Just where'd the cash go? Use of capital off the balance sheet. I'm a balance sheet cash flow guy. Walk me back. He said, I think I spent $2 billion buying back stock from CZ. I said, $2 billion? Day later, I'm starting to think about this. I call him back saying, look, I'm going to end. I just got called to testify in hearings. I got to have the real information. I got to have the truth. Was it $2 billion? Yes or no? He said, maybe it was $3 billion. Huh. I said, $3 so, billion. Kevin, we're, we're up against the clock, but I got to ask you this because you, you clearly have um, some choice words for, for Binance. It, it almost sounds like you think that that was a great trade for Binance. I mean, short of the company going bankrupt, they 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 made three billion dollars, two billion dollars, whatever Sam Bankman right, paid Melissa, for that get, stake. They right. made that. It was a brilliant move. But if you right. think after what happened today on the U.S. Senate floor is going to make it easy for Binance to get licensed anywhere on Earth, I don't think so. Right. I don't think right. so. We got to leave it there, Kevin. Thanks for joining us, Kevin O'Leary. By the way, an exclusive interview with the CEO of Binance on Squawk Box tomorrow right here on CNBC. Mm. All right. uh, Final trade time. Tim. (laughs) I'm not even sure I gave one. Oh, we didn't give one. Well, I mean, but I'll tell you, here's what I'll I'll say. Don't fight the Fed. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we had final trade. We always have final trade. I'll tell you what. Final trade. That was fast. I got very scared. I I mean, I felt it's it's happened before. We'll tweet some. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Craver starts right now. There's always a first. (laughs) This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.